0: So here's where I want to start. A quote from C.S. Lewis. He said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it can't be is, of no, is moderately important. And I think lots of people think Christianity is moderately important. Um, but here's some claims that Christianity makes, that Jesus made. Jesus said, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. And he actually said, if you don't believe in me, you won't have eternal life. That can't be moderately important. That's huge or insignificant depending on whether it's true or false. He also said you can have forgiveness of sins. He also said you can have a relationship with God. Those claims, if true, are huge. And so what we're going to ask about is, um, is there any evidence to think it's true? Um, And so, um, get there in a sec. So the, the, um, I don't know whether you've talked to people about this and found that they say, um, yep, people say this, you know, you you'd, you'd rot in the ground, you, you live in paradise, you become a cockroach. You know, lots of different views out there. Um, and at the end of the day, we're all just guessing. Have you heard that view? Um, most religions are like that. Um, if, you know, there's no way to know if Muhammad was right or Buddha was right, we're all just guessing. Um, and I think that's true, except for Christianity. And I know that's a big claim, but here's why. Because Christianity stakes its whole uh, claim on an event that it claims happened in time and space. And it claims that if that event is true, um, then uh, the claims of Christianity are true. And if that event did not happen, then Christianity is worthless. That's a big claim. Uh, But that's what we're going to look today. Um, And here are the the claims of the first Christians. Um, Because they actually staked everything on it themselves. And their preaching, if you were to look at it, wasn't... uh, a series of teachings, it was actually just a, uh, not just about this event, but the main thing it talked about was this historical event. So have a look there, there's Acts 2, 32 it says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. Um, here's the event that the early Christians staked the whole truth of Christianity on, the resurrection. And I'll prove it to you, um, there's that second quote there, um, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. They're staking the whole truth of Christianity on that one claim. Why is that? I'll tell you why. It's because of the implications of what it would mean if Jesus did rise from the dead. Now think about this with me. What would be the implications if Jesus, if Jesus did rise from the dead? Now some of you guys think that's a silly question because you're like, that's impossible. People can't rise from the dead. Now maybe not a lot of you guys think that. But lots of people I talk to think that it's impossible. And I always say to them, yes, right on. It is impossible if there's no God. If there's no God, if this world is all there is and there's no such thing as a supernatural, then, yeah, dead people stay dead. Um, Which would mean if it did happen, if it did happen, then this world is not all it is. If a dead person came back to life, then there is... supernatural there is a God powerful enough to raise the dead um, and it would also mean Jesus is no ordinary man that that he's the son of God and that the things he taught are true that's what it would mean um, and so track with me on this Um, whether or not you think that Jesus did rise from the dead would you agree that if he rose from the dead then God is real uh, heaven and hell are real because Jesus said they are. Death is not the end, and the things that Jesus taught are true. You follow that logic? If God's not real, dead people stay dead. So if Jesus did come back from the life, uh, come back from the dead, uh, then God is real, um, and what Jesus says has to be taken seriously. And obviously, death is not the end. Now, um, lots of people say, I don't know if you've heard this. Um, I like Christianity. I like Jesus but not this bit, not that bit, Um, I like those bits. The answer to that, that I always say is, well, if Jesus rose from the dead, then it's not really a question of which which bits you like, which bits you don't like. They're either all true or all uh, all false, because if Jesus really did rise from the dead, um, then you've got to kind of take everything he said seriously, um, because he's no ordinary man. But if he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? So you kind of have to accept everything if this is true. And right here, Christianity puts its head on the chopping block. Did this event happen or not? It's not about philosophy. It's not about all those kind of arguments people throw around. Historical event uh, that either did happen or didn't happen. And so what I want us to do right now is just to consider whether we think this event really did happen and whether we can be convinced beyond reasonable doubt that it happened. And uh, here's, a, here's a thing for you. We're not looking for absolute certainty. I'll tell you why. Because we don't have absolute certainty about anything. If we, you know, um, even in court cases, which I'm a law student, um, in court cases they don't require you to prove it absolute certainty. They require you to prove things in criminal cases beyond reasonable doubt, and in other cases, just more likely than not. So even there, they don't require you to prove things absolute certainty. If you actually thought about the, the number of things you know absolutely certainly. There's nothing. You, don't even, you couldn't prove to me that, you, um, that the rest of the world exists apart from you. You couldn't prove that to me because it could just be a dream. So we don't know anything with absolute certainty. What we're going to try and do is just think, is there evidence beyond reasonable doubt? In other words, you would have to be unreasonable not to accept that evidence. That's what we're looking for. And here's my challenge for this, this afternoon. It's to be good historians. Um, here's a quote from a historian named Philip Schaff. And he said this The purpose of history, of the historian, is not to construct a history from preconceived notions and to adjust it to his own liking, but to reproduce it from the best evidences and to let it speak for itself. So we're not going to come to this with what we think happened. We're going to just, hey guys, grab some chairs if you need to. Um, So we're going to come to this and just let the evidence speak for itself and be prepared to follow wherever that leads. So here's that question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? And um, and I've got a few, um, a few key factors that I'm going to share. But before I say that, here's something I want to say. Um, a lot of people think that the question of did Jesus rise from the dead or not, uh, it, the whole burden of proof is on the Christian. The burden of proof is whose job is it to convince me that that happened? Some people think that the entire burden of proof is the Christian has to convince me. And I think that's right but it's not quite the whole picture. Because there's also a burden of proof on the person who doesn't think it happened. tell you why. Because here you've got a whole religion that's sprung up. Uh, Two billion people, you've got a book, the Bible, that claims to be a historical document talking about it. Um, You've got these claims themselves that a person really did uh, rise from the dead. And so the burden of proof, you can't just say, no, I don't think it happened. It's not enough just to say that. You need to come up with an explanation of how you think all these things came to be, okay? And so uh, you need to come up with an explanation that fits every bit of evidence that we can establish as fact. Um, so you've got a job to do as well if you want to be sceptical, and I'm okay with being sceptical, I think it's great, but you've got a job to do. There's a burden of proof on both people. And so what I'm going to do is establish seven historical facts uh, which taken, con- uh, taken together convince me that Jesus rose from the dead. Seven facts. I think the first three are enough Um, and I mean the tragedy of this right to prepare this talk um, which I did in July I did on a camp I read three books totally and a a bunch more just kind of flicked through and there's so much stuff I was just blown away I'm actually really passionate about this topic because there's just so much evidence Um, and the tragedy is I just had to leave stuff out because otherwise we'd be here all day so here's seven, seven facts here's fact number one Jesus really lived and really died Now, if we're going to try and prove that Jesus rose from the dead, hey Todd, do you want to grab some chairs? Just grab a whole bunch of them. If you've just walked in, sucked in. Get there on time next time. We're trying to go seven historical facts that prove that Jesus rose from the dead. Fact number one Jesus lived and Jesus really, really died. Now, this is uh, obviously a good starting place. If Jesus never even lived, then there's no question to ask. And here's a quote from Richard Dawkins. If you don't know Richard Dawkins, he's an atheist who writes, uh, writes books about atheism. Atheism means you don't believe in God. And he's written... Yeah, you can come sit down here. <laughs> this guy, Richard Dawkins, has written this in The God Delusion, uh, which is uh, an interesting quote. He said, It's even possible... To mount a serious, though not widely supported, historical case that Jesus never lived at all, as has been done by, among others, Professor G. A. Wells of the University of London in a number of books, including Did Jesus Exist? Now, my point in bringing this up, by the way, is not to attack Richard Dawkins. Um, it's actually just to show you we need to be careful what we read. Is it true? I'll give you three reasons why this is an interesting quote. Number one, Professor G.A. Wells. You're thinking, man, that guy sounds smart. He's a professor. What's he a professor of? Anyone know? What, you know, what university is he a professor of, of history in? Well, he's actually not a professor of history. Professor G.A. Wells is a professor of German languages. <laughs> I don't know what German... I mean, no, German does have something to do with this question, but it's not really history. But there's two other interesting things. next one is that Professor G.A. Wells did claim that in his first book but then wrote two or three more three more um, that retracted the claim and in the third one, this has gotten out of hand, he wrote I no longer maintain this position. Well it's 2004, you can go look it up, it's right there and I mean maybe Dawkins knew about that, I don't think he did but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt there but here's the third point Um, there was a debate with Richard Dawkins and John Lennox who's a brilliant um, Oxford mathematician and he's a Christian and Lennox said you've claimed this in your book and I'll try and do it, he's got a Scottish accent it's just not true. No, I can't do it. (laughs) It's just not so. And Richard Dawkins said, there are a few. And and Lennox said, who? And Dawkins said, one. And and Lennox said, who? And then Dawkins said, okay, Jesus existed. At the end of the day, that's that's what Dawkins thinks, and that's what everyone thinks. And I'll prove that to you as well. That's just interesting, and that's just to prove you, to prove to you that it's important. If you're going to read stuff, you've got to be as skeptical of what the skeptics say as you are about what Christians say. But here's the reality. In scholarly circles, it's completely non-controversial that Jesus existed. And I'll tell you how I know that. I'll give you two reasons. One's a fun way. One's a boring way. Here's a fun way. Um, There's what I was saying. Here's this guy called John Dixon. He is a, he's not a professor, is he? But he is a historian at Macquarie University. He's a Christian. Um, And he wrote, around Christmas last year, just before it, I'll eat, A page of my Bible. If skeptics can find one professor of ancient history uh, or New Testament in a real university who thinks Jesus didn't live. So you get the challenge there. A guy called John Safran, um, who I don't know if you can see, but it says under there, retweeted by John Safran. He's a a radio guy and he's made TV shows as well. He's got 52,000 followers, uh, most of whom from Australia and he retweeted because he thought it'd be funny to see this guy eat a page of his Bible I think he was kind of interested in which page he would eat Um, and so here's what happened right 52,000 followers of John Saffron, plus how many followers John Dixon has on Twitter saw this tweet and then the names started to come in and here's what happened right Um, the names came in and John Dixon every time one came in would check it out and here's what happened now I haven't checked what they actually were but here's roughly what happened Um, Were they professors of ancient history? No, they were like a professor of dental surgery or a professor of Italian or I don't know, hairdressing or whatever you can do at uni. Like These names either weren't from real universities or they weren't real historians. And so a month after that, the minister here, Andrew Heard, called up John Dixon to ask him how many names had actually come in that met this criteria. Guess how many? Not one. There is not one professor of history or New Testament studies in any real university in the world who doubts that Jesus didn't live. That's powerful, isn't it? That's the fun way uh, of, of proving it to you. And the, but, but here's the boring way. And the reason that there's no scholars who think that is just because there's too much evidence. Now I don't have time to go through all of that and that would bore you to tears. But here's some of the most impressive. Tacitus, if you do year 12 history, you'll learn almost everything about Romans, almost everything you learn about the Roman Empire, you'll learn from Tacitus and a few other places. Um, and here's what he wrote. He lived in 56 AD, to, uh, 120. Um, and here's what he wrote. He mentions Jesus in passing. And I love it because it's so anti-Jesus, it's almost funny. Christians derived their name from a man called Christ, who during the reign of Emperor Tiberius, by the way, if you know the Bible, that's mentioned in the Bible, had been executed, also what's in the Bible story, um, by the sentence of the procurator, Pontius Pilate, also in the Bible story. Then he calls it the deadly superstition, thus checked for the moment, broke out afresh, not only in, in, the Judea, in Judea, which, by the way, is where the Bible says it happened, um, the first source of the evil, but also in the city of Rome where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. <laughs> I love it. Do you notice those bold bits? The bits that uh, that kind of match up with what the Bible's saying. There's one guy, and he's, he's anti-Christian, but he's writing about it. Now it doesn't prove uh, that you know he was he a was son of God or anything like that, but it shows that Tacitus considered uh, Jesus a real person. And just notice that it... Uh, it breaks out afresh in Judea, the first source. We're going to come back to that. So there's a little clue relevant later. Now, I could also tell you about... So, this guy's um, Roman or Greco-Roman. I could also tell you about a bunch of other guys who mentioned Jesus in passing, but I'm not. Uh, and then this is a Jewish guy. And there's, so, there's kind of two groups. There's the, the Roman and Greek guys, and then there's the Jewish guys who mentioned Jesus. Um, and there's four, four places where Jesus is mentioned in ancient Jewish things. Here's a guy called Josephus. And these people think a, a later Christian has actually uh, come in and tampered with a bit, as he's kind of copied it. Um, and so I'm happy to admit that, because I don't think it, it's very worrying, because there's so much other evidence. But if you wanted to know which ones of the scholars think Christians have put in, it's a bits in uh, italics and not bold there. I'm not going to read that to you, but Josephus talks about Jesus. And then a bit later, he talks about it again. And this one isn't uh, one that people think that people have tampered with. Um, and then you've also got this document called the Talmud, Uh, which is kind of like their legal reporting in in the Jewish system. Anyway, I'm rushing through this because it's not controversial. I just want you to show that there's no shortage to see. There's no shortage, even outside the Bible, of evidence that Jesus existed. Uh, In fact, John Dixon, in a book called The Christ Files, very good book, um, he says before you even open a Bible, here's what you can learn about Jesus from non-Christian uh, historical sources before you even now. It's interesting that it's before you open a Bible, because the Bible is a historical source, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. But that's some stuff. I'll just give you a second to read that. If you can't read it, I You can read his name, uh, where and when he was alive, uh, the name of his mother, that his birth was in doubt, um, that uh, he had the name of one of his brothers, which the New Testament also says. Um, that he was called the Messiah Christ, that some people considered him kingly. You can find at the time and manner of his execution uh, that uh, there was a, a, an eclipse at the time of his execution or a, the report of it, um, and then a movement that flourished after his death. There's just so much there. Here's a first. If you've walked in late, I'll kind of give you a quick overview of where we have been. We're trying to prove that Jesus rose from the dead because if that happened, then you can't say there's no God because dead people don't rise unless God raises them. And you've got to look at what Jesus said. He's no ordinary man if he's raised from the dead. And so that's what we're trying to look at. And I've got seven pieces of evidence. Evidence number one, or the the starting place, is Jesus really lived. No scholar doubts it. And that's what we've just seen. If he really lived, then he died. Pretty straightforward, yeah? Um, I don't know if that's an issue for anybody. Did Jesus really die? But uh, if you think Jesus didn't die, I'd love to chat to you. I've got about 27 reasons uh, that I think you can be pretty confident Jesus died, but I'll give you the best one. Jesus was executed on a cross by Romans, and they were very good at it. They executed thousands of people. They were very, very good at it. Uh, and he was, he was really dead. But um, I'll rush over that, because I think it's pretty obvious that if someone lives, they died. So there you go. Jesus really lived, and he really died, uh, and the evidence there is unshakable. There's the first piece of evidence. Now, the second, uh, the second piece of evidence is that Jesus' tomb was empty. Jesus' tomb was empty. So on the first Easter morning, if you'd run down to Jesus' tomb Sunday morning, you would have found uh, that there was no body there. And here's the thing: no one's ever been able to tell to explain where the body went. Now I'm going to. You might ask, how do I know that the tomb was empty? I'm going to give you three ways I know. The first thing to keep in mind, first way, is that Jesus was buried in a tomb that everyone knew about. He was buried in a known tomb. We know the, the name of the guy who owned the tomb even today. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. Um, and he was this wealthy guy. He donated his tomb to Jesus to be buried in. And so here's what happened. Jesus was examined, declared dead. I don't know if you know the story. A spear was thrust into his side and, uh, and blood and water came out, which indicates uh, that the spear went into his heart sac, which is water kind of cushioning the heart and then the heart, which has blood in it. So that's why blood and water came out. So the spear goes in. He's definitely dead. Another reason I think that. Uh, and then he's taken down from the cross. He's probably wrapped in cloth, uh, and then he's laid in this tomb. And then a guard is put outside it, and a, a Roman seal is put on the tomb, which would have been a rope across it, sealed into the into the stone. With, I forget what wax or something. So here's the thing: Jesus was buried in a tomb. We know the name. Um, if you'd wanted to, know, if you want to find the tomb, it would have been easy to find. You go to the one with the guard, with the with the seal outside. Now, keep this in mind. I don't know how big you think Jerusalem was back in the day, but 2,000 years ago was not (laughs) as big as it is now. And every gravesite within the surrounds of Jerusalem would have been a 15-minute walk from the center of it. So just think about that. Every gravesite in this area is within 15-minute walk uh, from kind of wherever you're coming from. And um, so there's the first thing. They knew where Jesus' tomb was. Now, here's a second thing to consider. You've got these guys going around claiming, we saw Jesus raised from the dead. What would have been one very, very easy way to disprove what they're saying? To, you know, There's no chance that they're right about this claim. Jesus definitely is not risen from the dead. What do you guys reckon? Hmm? Witnesses that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Maybe. Yeah, maybe. What I'm saying is there are people walking around saying, I saw Jesus rise from the dead and you want to disprove it. Yeah, I reckon if you could show them a body, that would be pretty good proof. Does anyone disagree with that? <laughs> if, if I'm saying I saw a guy rise from the dead um, and then holds up the guy's body and it's still dead, that is proof that he's not risen. You get that? So here's the second thing to keep in mind. Anyone could have disproved the claims of early Christianity, all they would need to do was uh, was produce a body. And here's the thing. There was lots of motivation for people to do this. The Romans wanted to stop Jesus because he was causing trouble. That's why they executed him. Uh, the Jews wanted to stop Jesus because he was causing them trouble. That's why they wanted him dead as well. Um, and so, you know, anyone lived within a 15-minute walk of this tomb. Anyone could have gone there, got the body if it was still there. And held it up, gone, Nah, he's still dead. Now, here's a third piece of evidence. Do you remember what Tacitus said about where Christianity started? Who remembers? Judea. Judea, Judea, Judea I don't know how you say it, but yes, that's the right place. Judea, the first source. Here's the thing to get in your mind. Christianity started in the last place it could possibly have started if the tomb was not empty. If it had started over in Italy, you know, there in Italy saying, way back in Jerusalem, we saw a guy raised from the dead, maybe people would believe him. But there was one place at the time where no one would, would be convinced by this claim. No one would be convinced in Jerusalem where you could just go to the tomb, look, there's the body, he's still dead. Which means that there cannot have been a body to show the tomb must have been empty. Now think about this. Throughout history, lots of people have tried to explain away Christianity, even in the early days. But no one has ever denied, throughout history, no one has ever denied that the tomb was empty. So there's a guy called Frank Morrison, um, and he says this. He, he, by the way, was a lawyer, and I'm... pretty sure this is the guy who um, set out to disprove Christianity and ended up, when he looked into it, being convinced it was true and then wrote a book about how true it was. There's actually a bunch of people like that. He said, in all the fragments and echoes of this far-off controversy which have come down to us, we are nowhere told that any responsible person asserted that the body of Jesus was still in the tomb. We are only given reasons why it was not there. And running through all these ancient documents is the persistent assumption that the tomb of Christ was vacant. And if you wanted, I could point you to a couple of places uh, where in the very early centuries, um, opponents of Christianity, disproving it, have claimed this. The disciples stole the body. Very interesting claim that they're making. Because what does it tell you? If they're saying the disciples stole the body, then there was no body. There's a missing body. Which means the tomb was empty. So here you go. Fact number two. The tomb was empty. There was no body in it. Yeah, that's, that's in itself not that surprising. Maybe, yeah, maybe the disciples did steal it. Well, piece of evidence number three, Orokin, is, is huge. Maybe this one alone would convince me, but there's heaps more than just this one. Piece of evidence number three, hundreds. oh, that's interesting, that's down the bottom there. Okay, anyway. Hundreds of eyewitnesses uh, claim that, that they saw him alive. Now listen to these verses, okay? Um, Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses uh, of the fact. Or 2 Peter 1, 16 to 17. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. Now interesting there, he knows the difference between a story and fact. And he's saying, no, it's not a story. We saw it. 1 John 1, uh, 1 to 3. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. There's one more, and I love this one, probably most of all. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8. These are all from your Bible, by the way. You can go look them up. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles and last of all he appeared to me. Let me make a few points about what we've just seen. First of all, let me just point out there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. And these eyewitnesses, the second thing I want to point out to you, um, these eyewitnesses are early. So this one, Corinthians, uh, there's a date there that scholars think this was written. About 20, no more than 25 years after Jesus' death. Who's been watching the moon landing thing? Has anyone seen that on TV? That was 40 years ago. 43 years ago, I think. Oh, no, yeah, roughly that. I don't know if you've seen that. But my, my parents can remember where they were, what color the TV set, they were watching on a black and white TV. They can remember that kind of detail 40 years ago, okay? Well, this was written less than 25 years after Jesus. People are still living who remember it. And it's really interesting. Paul says that. He says, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, this is a letter that would have been read publicly to the whole church because oftentimes people then wouldn't have been able to read it. And also, paper was expensive, so they just have one copy. They'd read it to everybody. Now, I want you to imagine you're reading this publicly and it says there, most of whom are still living. Why do you reckon Paul puts that in there? What do you reckon? That's right. He's, he's arguing to the Corinthians that Jesus really did rise from the dead and he says, most of whom are still living, I think you're right. I think it's saying, if you don't believe me, you could go ask them. Might mean a trip to Jerusalem, but they're there, you know. Maybe not. Maybe some of them are still in the, in the Corinthian church. Um, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. They're early and they're still living when the New Testament is being written down. I'll come back to that. But here's another thing. There were multiple different eyewitness accounts. And here's what you got. you got eyewitness accounts that agree in the major differences but differ in the minor differences. Now, I'm not saying they contradict each other. What I'm saying is um, that they're consistent, but they're different. I'll give you an example. In one of the Gospels, it says, Mary went to the tomb. In another Gospel, it says, the women went to the tomb. Plural, more than one. So which is it? Did Mary go to the tomb? Or did more than one woman go to the tomb? Or is it that more than one woman went, but one of them has just decided, I'm just going to talk about this one. Maybe that was the one he talked about it. Maybe he just wants to personalize it. Who who knows why? But they're both true. They've just told it differently. Now, I'll tell you something about the way um, police evaluate kind of people's stories, okay? I want you to imagine you're a police officer. People come to you and uh, there's a few different people and they all tell you. You kind of get them into the room one by one and you listen to their story and they all tell you the identically same story. What do you start to wonder? Maybe, anyone got any, anyone suspicious of that? No? You think that's brilliant? Make terrible policemen. Uh, (laughs) Here's what police think. If they're all identical, you gotta, yeah, people think they cooked up that story themselves. If all the stories are identical, what if they all come in and that one tells you one story, that one tells you a totally different story, that one tells you a totally different story? Obviously, some or all of them are wrong. What police look for are a, are stories that are identical on the major issues but differ in the minor issues. For example, you might be talking about a soccer game and you're like, yep, it was a great game but we lost 4-3. The ref was a, you know, the ref was a joke but we played really well. And then you might ask someone else and they're like, man, um, that was just, just atrocious. We played terribly um, but the, the score was, was 4 oh Let me start that again. I just got confused. that soccer game, <laughs> and you're like, um, "Yep, yeah, we we lost four three, but uh, you know, we played a good, we played a pretty good game. We tried our best, um, and uh, and you know, these people scored goals. Fred, Harry, and Samantha. Um, it's a mixed soccer. <laughs> now this guy over here is like, "Ah, oh, gee, I don't know." Um, we made lots of mistakes. The ref was against us. I think we could have won. Um, we lost four um, three, but yes, yeah, Samantha, um, Tom, and someone else scored a goal. Or not Tom. I think it was Tom. Maybe it was Harry. You know, there you go. There you got two stories. And what they do is they agree on the major differences. You can't lie about the score unless unless you get it wrong. But you can't lie about it unless you forget it. But you can't lie about the score. You can't lie about who scored the goals. And generally, they got the same kind of gist of the game. They lost. One person thought they tried the hardest. One person thought um, the ref was against them. Different kind of perspectives, but the same basic events. I think I totally stuffed up that analogy, but you get what I'm saying. What you get in the Bible, you get multiple accounts that that agree on all of the major details and are kind of distinct in the minor details. Differences of perspective. But I'm convinced, actually, not contradictory. Um, I'll give you one example of not contradictory. John says at uh, three o- oh, at, at the third hour, I might get this quite wrong, a little bit wrong, but John says at the third hour, Jesus was crucified. Another one says at the ninth hour, Jesus was crucified. Which is it? Well, it seems like a contradiction until you realize that these guys are using the Jewish system of time, which starts at midnight, so ninth hour is 9 a.m. These guys are using the Roman system of time, or the Greek system. Uh, and that starts at 6 a.m. So a third hour, six, seven, nine. So saying the same thing in different ways. That makes sense, I'll just confuse your heaps. Sorry about that. It's OK. A couple of other quick points about these eyewitnesses accounts. They 're really detailed. These aren't like a glimpse in the distance. I think I saw Jesus, and then I 'm not sure what happened after that. These accounts, if you read them, they 're phenomenally detailed in terms of they talk about the setting, the time of day the events, the conversation, even the impact it had on the people who were watching. Another thing to keep in mind is that these sightings were by a variety of different people in a variety of different circumstances. Um, so you've got Mary at the early morning. You've got all the apostles um, at night. You've got two of them on a the beach. You've got 500 of them at once. One of them, Jesus, eats a piece of fish, uh, which I think is to show he's not a ghost because ghosts don't eat fish. Uh, there's another one where, where Jesus says, Thomas says, look, I'm struggling to believe this. Um, unless I'm allowed to touch his hands, you know, the holes in his hands, unless I can touch that, I don't, I'm not going to believe it. Jesus says, all right, there you go, feel that. And, and Thomas goes, wow. Jesus, you're my Lord and oh my God. So different sorts of sightings by different sorts of people. Now I'll tell you a really interesting one that makes me think um, these eyewitnesses are not made up. Um, they include embarrassing details. I'll tell you what I mean by that. These, if you read the Bible, you'll notice little things that they wouldn't have included uh, if they were making it up. So one of them, for example, is, and I'm not saying anything about women, okay, but in their culture, uh, women were not considered reliable witnesses. Now, I'm not saying that's true, um, but they thought that. And so if you're in a court case, you could have like 16 women say one thing and one man say another thing, and they would go with the man. Um, or, I don't know the numbers, but you know, they weren't considered reliable witnesses. Now, if you read the gospel accounts, all of them say that the first witnesses of the resurrection, the first people of the tomb, were women. Now, that's not something you would make up because that would rob the story of, of credibility. John, is that all of them or just one of them? That was a bit of Some of them do, yeah. I just don't want to go on record on saying that and then be wrong but at least some of them do it's not a detail you would make up okay some might say other people went but not that they were the first it would be an embarrassing thing for them if women were the first witnesses it would be a nicer thing if they could leave it out of the story so why would they make it up and why would they put it in the only conclusion I can draw about that is that it happened and it was so well known that uh, they couldn't have left it out without people going, hey, why'd you leave that thing out? It, just, it happened and it was part of the story and they, couldn't, they didn't feel like they could leave it out. Here's another one. If you read them, the disciples who are like the leaders of the church look like idiots in the stories. Like they look like cowards. They keep getting things wrong. I don't reckon if they were making it up, they would make up embarrassing details about themselves uh, unless they're just trying to write down the truth. We're talking about these eyewitnesses. I think we might be up to these things. Here's the here's um, one that convinces me maybe more than all of those. Okay? So you've got these eyewitnesses. And here's a factor. Many of the eyewitnesses suffered and even died for the claim that they saw Jesus rise from the dead or risen from the dead. They didn't see him literally rise, but they saw him afterwards walking around. Okay? They were, some of them were arrested, some of them were beaten, and of the 12 disciples, um, history, kinda, history and tradition tells us that 11 of the 12 were, uh, were eventually killed for their claim. The other guy, John, didn't get much better. They tried to kill him, it failed, so they put him on a desert island for the rest of his life. There's a, a thing you might not have heard about, but it's called the Watergate scandal. Uh, it's in American politics uh... this huge scandal where the president was involved in a big cover-up and do you know what when that happened it took about two weeks for some of the president's closest people to come out and admit that there was a cover-up because what they faced was prison if they were were making it up Uh, sorry if they were caught in it Um, they faced prison now all they faced was prison here's what the the disciples faced they faced death Um, Here's what happened. The Romans would say, stop spreading this claim. And they wouldn't stop talking about it, so they, they put him in prison, but they still wouldn't stop talking about it. And so they would start to, to persecute them and, and whip them and stuff. And in the end, they would say, look, if you don't stop talking about this thing, we are going to execute you. Now, these aren't just people dying for their faith. Okay, That happens all the time. Um, this is actually quite different to that. This is people who always believed one thing, But that is, they were Jews. They grew up believing that God is only one. There's only one God and he's in heaven. That's what they've grown up believing. And now they believe that Jesus is God, that they've seen him come back from the dead, which is quite different, that now there's this person He's God. That would have been blasphemous to the Jews. So something's happened to convince them of that. But now they're claiming, I saw that. Not just I've grown up being taught this, and I'm going to die for it because I'm dedicated to it. No. I saw this. Now, think about this. Would you die for something you knew was a lie? I don't think anyone would. I don't think anyone would die for something they knew was a lie. And here's the conclusion I draw. These eyewitnesses really believed that they were telling the truth. One other little thing, they had no motive to lie. Okay? Okay? They had nothing to gain. It comes out of what I'd just been saying then. What did they get out of it? Did they get, I got a mate and and we kind of were chatting and and he was like, no, I think they made up for power and for money. No, (laughs) no one got any money, no one got any power out of it for hundreds of years afterwards. And there was no guarantee that would even happen. All these guys had um, staring them in the face was humiliation, persecution, jail, and maybe even death. There was no motive for them to, to lie and make it up. So put this together. I don't know if I've got a slide that puts them all together. But what you've got is hundreds of people who say, I am an eyewitness. They're early. They're still alive while the New Testament's being written. They're detailed. They come from a variety of circumstances. They contain embarrassing details. And people suffered and maybe even died defending their claims, and they had no motive to lie. In other words, hundreds of people really believe that they saw Jesus alive walking around after he died. Just let that, that, let that sink in. Hundreds of people really believe they saw Jesus. Now here's what I want to suggest. If you had that kind of evidence for any other event, you would believe it. Imagine if 15, oh, if, imagine if 500 people claim to have seen, I don't know, a 20-foot wave off the haven. Very unlikely. But you've got 500 people who say they saw it. And they're all different sorts of people. They're not all like just fishermen who've maybe been out in the open a bit long and gone a bit crazy. There's like parents picking up their kids from soccer and, I don't know, um, old retirees and young kids. And they're all saying, I saw a 20-foot wave off the haven. 500 people, you've got to start to think maybe there actually was a 20 foot wave. Damn. And then, I don't know, for some reason the government hates 20 foot waves. Okay? It's like, no! There was, oh no, what happens is local surfers don't want word to get out about this sweet new surf spot that's randomly just popped up. So local surfers start going around and, and kind of capturing and kidnapping all of these 500 people, or some of them. I know, extreme surfers. And they say to them, look, we'll let you go if you stop talking about it. And they're like, no, can't stop talking about it. (laughs) This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. It's the only story I've got. Let me tell it. (laughs) And so then they start shooting like these people for their claim. Okay, it's obviously ridiculous. But you get the point, right? At what point do you start to go, maybe they actually saw it? (coughs) Here's what I reckon you can't escape. Here's a conclusion I think you can't escape. These people really believe they saw it and because there's so many, I don't think you can get around this. I think it really happened. Here's a way to think about it. Imagine you had a court trial and each of these people gave their story for six minutes in court. 500 people. That evidence alone would go for 50 hours. 50 hours of people saying, yep, I saw that. It becomes even more convincing to me when you combine it with the fact of the empty tomb, okay? So you've got these people saying, yep, we saw Jesus raised from the dead. But you might be like, yep, but they're just smoking the local, you know, grass and, you know, they're hallucinating. Okay, well, if that's the case, then someone would have produced a body, okay? But the tomb was empty, all right? Say you just had the tomb that's empty. Then people would say, ah, the disciples stole the body. Really? Well, if the disciples stole the body, why did they die saying, I saw him raised to life? When you take the two together, they confirm one another. There's a missing body and 500 people saying, We saw him. They confirm one another. And so here's what I want you to do whatever you came into this room thinking about, just let these facts hit you. Jesus really lived, he really died. His tomb was empty and hundreds of people claim that they saw him alive and they really believe it. What do you think happened? These are historical facts and you need to have an explanation for it. Pause and see if anyone's got any questions, or we'll, we'll want to challenge stuff. I want people to like. What about this? Yes. Mm-hmm. Have you got any examples? Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a good question. Um, thank you and appreciate it. Um, evidence for not Christianity. If someone's got some, I'm happy to see it. Um, yeah, I reckon if, if there's any good evidence for not for other things, you want to look at it just like we're doing right now. But um, I think you still got to deal with this. If someone's got someone, I'm happy to hear it. Yeah. So the question, if you missed it, I'm. I tell me if I got this wrong. Um, how is it possible, like some of the miracles and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's well, not possible by physical processes? Okay. So, so the question is, how is it possible Jesus was born of a virgin? Yeah, it's not possible. So, so, um, if there's no, or if there's an all-powerful God, yeah. could an all-powerful God put an embryo in a womb that's fertilized? Yeah. I think he could if he wanted to. But here's what i do with, with the virgin birth. Don't start there. Go, is it impossible, if there's an all-powerful God, is it impossible? You just said he could if he wanted to. It's not impossible if there's an all-powerful God. but We don't know necessarily whether there's an all-powerful God. So I would start with the resurrection. Did that happen? And if that did happen, that proves there's an all-powerful God, which allows you to come back down and go, well, what are the chances that an all-powerful God would want to do this? And that's where I go with that. So for miracles, the the answer to miracles is, yeah, if there's no God, yeah, they're impossible. That's kind of the point. But I think the resurrection proves that there is an all-powerful God, which just allows you to go, yeah, well, if he wants to do a miracle, it's not hard for him. To your PE teacher <laughs> 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 I've never thought about that I think maybe I don't want to say this in front of the children cover your, um, I'm happy to chat to you about that after I think it might have just been painful <laughs> I don't know uh, I don't know that's a really really in, unique question so I'm happy to chat to you more about that question of miracles is a, is a philosophical one but yeah it's a good one thanks mm. I think you'd prove him that you'd start here. Where did everything come from? And I know today we know the answer is Big Bang. Well, that's what science says, and I personally have no problem with that. No Christians disagree on that. You'd go, okay, well, where did the Big Bang come from? So that's how we do it today. I think back then it would have been, yeah, where did everything come from? I think there's enough proof in creation that there's a God without any of this. But now we have the added benefit of this. Other questions? Yeah, sure. Hmm. Um, yeah, what's going on there? So, yeah. 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 So the question, if you missed it, in the in Luke, there's one account of Jesus's kind of Ancestry, genealogy, and in another account, Matthew. There's another account. Yeah, really good question. I don't personally know the answer. I've got some theories, but it's something that I'm still thinking about. Um, Some people think, as you said, that one is uh, his mum's ancestry and one's his dad's. Um, Another option is that one is his kind of his ancestry through kings. Another is that it's his ancestry through his kind of biological one. Another one is that it takes into account adoption and that kind of thing along the way. Um, another in is that maybe it skips some generations. Um you line them up. Yeah, there's a there's a, a one where I'm still thinking about. Um, but there's a few different theories out there. Yeah. Um, last question. Have you got a thought on that? or Oh, it's you, Hannah. Oh yeah, thanks. Yeah, cool. Mm, Yeah, really helpful. Um, Oh, questions coming everywhere, yeah? Mm. Oh, that's easy. Yeah, let me deal with that. Thank you. I'm glad you raised that. This comes up so often, and I really want to just. Okay. So. Where did, where did the world come from? The Big Bang. Cool. Where did the Big Bang come from? God. And then people say, okay, where did God come from? And Christians at that point go, uh. Oh. Very easy. Anything that begins to exist must have a creator. Okay? Now, a hundred years ago, almost to the year, was the turning point where science switched from thinking the universe had always exist to thinking that had a beginning. Okay? Which is interesting that 100 years ago, scientists, the, the best minds, had no problem with the universe always existing. Okay, There is nothing wrong, let me just get this out there, there's nothing wrong with something always existing. Where you get into trouble is when the scientists kind of worked out that actually the Bible was right all along, the universe did have a beginning. Okay, And suddenly then it becomes right to ask, okay then, how did it begin? Does that make sense? So where did God come from? Well, actually at some point, you need to land on something that... Has, if, if, if that's caused by that, then you go, what caused that? Well, if that's caused by that, then what caused that? At some point, you need to land on something that's the ultimate cause, the solid ground, something that always existed. At some point, you need to land on that. That's God. So God always existed and he doesn't need an explanation because it's only if something begins to exist that you need a beginner and then the universe came from him. I was really wanted to get that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's something I hear a lot of times. The key line is, only if something begins to exist, does it need a creator? Last one, and then we'll keep it going yeah, that, um, uh, that talk about it. There are references to he was considered to be maybe but no, not that I know of, no non-Christian, or like there's Christians outside the Bible, all through history. No non-Christian, um, which I take it to, to mean, everyone that was convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and bothered to write about it was Christian. So there might have been two sorts of people back then. I'm convinced that he rose from the dead, but I don't, I don't want to follow Jesus. That's what a Christian is. So I, if I don't want to follow about it, I'm not going to write that it happened and help that spread. Um, then there's people who wrote but didn't think he rose from the dead. We got them. That makes sense. Or, or didn't comment on it at all. So no, everyone that everyone that was convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and wrote about it is was Christian. But I think that makes sense to me. If someone's convinced Jesus rose from the dead, it makes sense to me that they're a Christian. Or that they would become a Christian. Oh. On that, you got a comment? Yeah? Yeah, go for it. Is he white? Okay. Yeah, right. Because I don't think he would have been white. No, just fact, he grew up, he was born in, in Palestine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's an interesting thought. Maybe there's some pictorial evidence there. Um, you can go check that out. I haven't, I haven't come across it, but that's thanks for sharing. Hey, guys, hands down. I'm going to just push on, and we can keep talking afterwards. So all this stuff, so we've got these three facts uh, there. At this point, I want to just quickly tackle something head on, which is this. We've assumed up to this point that the Bible a reliable historical document. Okay? And so here's really quickly. I want to just uh, raise that question. Is it? How do we know it can be trusted? And I think it's a fair question and I'll tell you why I'm convinced that it is. When you ask that question, is it a reliable historical document, there are two issues that you're facing. One is, has it changed over time? And the second is, um, is what the original authors wrote true? Okay, You see why those are the important questions? If what they wrote wasn't true, then there's no point wondering whether it's changed or whether we've got what they wrote. If what they wrote was true but it's changed and what we've got isn't what they wrote then there's no point even looking at them. So there's the two questions. We're going to deal with that first one or the, the can we be confident that it hasn't changed? We're going to deal with that first. Okay, so point number one we can be confident that the New Testament documents have not been changed and I want to start with this because lots of people think they've been lost in translation and um and I don't know, who's heard this? We can't trust the Bible because it's been translated from, um, I don't know, Greek to, old, to Latin to Old English to New English to now. Who's heard that? Yeah, heaps of people. Here's a really easy answer to that. It's wrong. Okay? The, old, the, the New Testament writers wrote in Greek. The Old Testament wrote in Hebrew. There's one bit of Aramaic. I'm just going to talk about Greek because I know some Greek. Um, and this is a Greek New Testament. Okay? So this is what the original writers wrote in Greek. This is the start of the Gospel of Mark. Arke tu euangelion Jesu Christu, Huiu theu. And that beats in brackets. I'll talk about that in a sec. Kathos ge graptai en toi Hosea te prophete. Okay, now what was that? What did that mean? Anyone want to guess? Something about Isaiah the prophet? Yeah. Now my pronunciation is bad, by the way. But Arche, arch, like beginning, like arch enemy, first enemy. Arke tu euangelion. The beginning of the good news, Jesu Christu, of Jesus Christ. Then in brackets, it's got Huiyu uh, Theu, which means the Son of God, but that's in brackets because they're not sure if that was in the original. I'll come back to that. Kathos uh, ge graptai en toi as it was written in Isaiah the prophet. Here, um, I did Greek at uni um, under non Christian lecturers reading non Christian sources like Plato and Aristotle. Uh, and then uh, when I came to read the Bible I'll tell you the biggest disappointment that I came across it was just what the English translation said that was, it was so disappointing I, was, I thought like I'd crack open this whole new world of meaning and actually at some points there are, you know, the, the, there are different, there's four different Greek words for sin five um, and so when you look at which Greek word you get kind of some idea of nuance in what they mean but basically the English versions we've got, and you can get in any bookstore, have been translated directly from that, like I just did, by scholars much better than me, and they're very good translations. So it's just wrong to say it's been lost in translation. Um, but that's, that's all very well. But the question is, how do we know this hasn't changed over time? Well, I want to show you something. Ooh, what did I do? There we go. Here are some authors of ancient <coughs> historical documents, okay? Um, Pliny is a historian, Tacitus, we talked about him, also a historian. Homer uh, wrote this huge book, the Iliad, and then the New Testament, which is the Bible. I want you to think, how do you reckon the Bible stacks up against these sources uh, in terms of reliability? Well, you'll be blown away by this. Let's talk about them. Pliny um, was written in about AD 61 to 113. Um, and this is a really interesting column. What's the earliest copy that we have? Because that tells you the gap in that time. That's when changes could have happened. Okay, changes can't have happened after that copy because we've got that copy. It can't have been changed. We've got it. So if there's any changes, it had to happen in that gap. And then the last col- the last column, that's really uh, an important number as well because that tells you how many copies we have, which tells you how much it's changed. Okay. If this copy says, if say there's four copies that say one thing and three copies say the other thing, you know somewhere along the line it's changed there. If five copies say one, one says this and one says this, then those five are probably right. Unless this one is like a really early one. You see what I mean? That last column is evidence of what happened in that 750 years. Does that make sense? Now the reason Homer's up there is because Homer is the best that we have. The gap for Homer is 800 years and we've got 643 Copies of what he wrote. So it's pretty good. And, and most people would look at that and go, yeah, we know, rough, we know pretty well what Homer wrote. Now I'm going to show you the New Testament. I don't know if you can see that, but the gap of the first fragments that we have is only 50 years. Not 800 years, or 400 years. I don't know why I said 800 And And the, the, complete, the earliest complete New Testament that we have A.D. 325, which is only 225-year gap, which sounds like a lot, but when you talk about ancient documents, it's like a gap. Like um, and we've actually got um, kind of between those two, between a fragment and New Testament, we've got kind of um, a whole book about, I don't know if I wrote it down in here, a um, whole book about A.D. 200, which is about 100-year gap, and then most of the New Testament in one book about A.D. 250, um, and then the whole New Testament's up there. But here's the killer. How many copies do we have? Compared to Homer's 643, in Greek, we got, that's my alarm, huh, stuff that. <laughs> in Greek, you got 5,686 manuscripts. And when you include translations of those, which are good evidence about uh, what it said as well, um, you get another 19,000, leaving you with a total of 24,970 manuscripts. That is a lot of, of manuscripts. Now, right off the face of this, here's what you need to get in your mind. If you think there's any doubt about the New Testament, you need to throw out all of your ancient history books because it's the best. So if your standard's higher than the best, you lose everything. Okay? But I'm going to get more specific than that. This gap uh, between the, when it was written and the earliest copy got gives you the maximum amount of time that changes could have happened. Uh, it's very narrow, but... When you look at those, um, those manuscripts, it gives you evidence about what those changes were. And there were changes. There were either by um, deliberate additions by scribes or just people like missing things. There were errors and changes. If you add them up, probably about three hundred and fifty to 400,000, which sounds like a lot. Um, but you've got to remember there's thousands of manuscripts, so it's actually just a bunch in each one. Um, but what it means is um, I don't know if I've put this in the slideshow no I haven't um, by comparing them you can work out what it originally said with 20,000 you've actually got a really good idea so you can imagine one says um, I can do all and there's like a little corruption and you don't know what it originally said but it ends in NGS Okay, I can do all NGS and then you've got another one that says I can do all things in fact, you've got 15,000 that say that. And then over here, you've got one that says, I can do everything. Okay? What do you think the original thing said? Probably said, I can do all things. Okay? So that one's just missing a letter, so I can do all things. But that, you can work out how that happened. They, they left that one out. And someone here, a scribe's been copying them and done a bit quickly, I can do everything. And you've got a couple hundred of them because they've been copied off like this. Does that make sense? By comparing these, we can, we can work out um, what the original said. And so here's here's the thing. Out of those, I said there's 400,000 changes. Um, spelling differences account for about 75% of them. So that's 300,000. And then another large chunk is synonyms. Do you know what synonyms is? Same word, uh, or different word for the same thing. So in one passage it might say, Jesus walked to Galilee. Another one it might say, He walked to Galilee. And you can just see what happened there. Scribes kind of just copied it sloppily, um, but you know what the meaning is. And so when you actually work it out, what percentage of those differences actually affect the meaning of the passage? Well, the answer is 1%. 1% affect the meaning of the passage. And that includes places where, uh, I'll I'll give you an example. In 1 John 1.4, it says we write this so that our joy may be complete, or in another group of um, documents, we write this so that your joy may be complete. And the, in the Greek, it's only one letter difference. Our joy, your joy. That affects the meaning of the passage. But gee, not much. It doesn't really change. It's not earth-shaking. Christianity is wrong because of that difference. You hear that? And so if you just filter those out, the ones that don't actually affect any real Christian teaching, here's what you find. How many of those differences affect any major Christian teaching? Not one. There's not one doubt um, about any of those passages that affect any Christian teaching. In other words, scholars um, can confirm 99% of the New Testament um, has been reconstructed beyond reasonable doubt. In other words, they, they have no doubt that what you've got in your hand is what the original authors wrote. And how, do you, how could you find out what those other 1% are? See if anyone can guess this. How could you find out what those other 1% are? an answer yeah that's right yes almost every bible that you buy will tell you it's not a secret it's not locked up in some secret institution every bible and that's what I, you know i read out there's a bit in brackets that's what that was so i can see here and i can actually see oh that those and it tells me down the bottom there which manuscripts uh, say which and it gives me a, a summary of it so I can see, oh, so those really early ones say that, but some later ones say this. They think this, I think that. So you can go and have a look and see where, the, where we're not sure, but here's the reality. When you look at it, there's not many of them, and they don't affect very much. So here's, the, here's the, the conclusion of all of that. We can conclude that we can be very, very confident that we have a reliable copy of what the original authors wrote. I hope I've convinced you that um, I tried to kind of move through a bit quickly. But here's, a, here's the next question. Um, did they write the, the truth in the first place? Um, and I'll give you seven reasons that I think they did. Number one, we've talked about it. Um, it was based on eyewitnesses recorded very close to the time of the events. So there's very little time for it to have been kind of blown out of proportion. Um, but number two, I think it's unlikely. These are in no particular order. I think it's unlikely that they made up stuff to promote a teacher who taught let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, that would essentially be uh, knowingly committing the biggest fraud in history to promote the greatest ethical feature in history. I, I don't think it makes sense but that's not enough in itself but when you look at the big picture because number three they had no motive to lie number four as we've seen they suffered and died for it number five their accounts were circulated during the lifetime of contemporary witnesses these are people who were alive at the time um, And could have disagreed with them. I did this talk first on a camp packed out with non-Christians. And they were all year 12s and they were doing history. If I'd been just making stuff up and they did this, if I made the wrong mistake, I would get a question on it. They actually wrote down the stuff I said. And at the end of my talk, sorry, you said this, but what about this? And they picked me up on it. If they wanted their, um, their claim to have any credibility, the presence of these Um, hostile witnesses would have held them back. Um, A guy called Stan Gundry said, Christianity would have opened itself to ridicule if it had created such stories to perpetuate itself. Number seven, or six, depending on who's counting. The stories do not sound like a legend. Now, that doesn't sound like a big point. But I'll tell you why it is. C.S. Lewis was a professor of medieval literature. He was a world authority on what myth is. He said, as a literary historian, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I've read a great deal of legend and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. I wonder if you think that they were made up. I wonder if you've read them for yourself. When you read them, they have the ring of truth about them. They don't sound like stuff that people made up. But I've been saving the best of these to last they're confirmed by archaeology. Now, archaeology can't prove something true, but it can prove that they were accurate in what they wrote down. Now, we don't have time to look at everything in this point, so I'll just share two things, because there's a whole world of stuff here. I might just share one, actually. Um, I want to tell you about a guy called Sir William Ramsey. I'll save that quote. He died in 1939, and when he died, he was the world-leading authority um, on the, the history of the area, Asia Minor, um, he was a leading New Testament scholar, but he was not a Christian to the day he died. And here's what happened. He studied in Germany at a time when uh, people just considered that Acts had been made up um, and it was, it was inaccurate. But here's what happened as he investigated. He says, I began with a mind unfavorable to it, but more recently I found myself brought into contact with the book of Acts. As an, oh, by the way, the book of Acts, in the Bible, a guy called Luke wrote it about... Uh, events that happened just after Jesus' life. As an authority for the topography, antiquities, and society of Asia Minor, it was gradually borne upon me that in various details, the narrative showed marvelous truth. Further study showed that the book could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world, and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. Um, this guy, but Luke wrote Acts, he also wrote the Gospel of Luke about Jesus and he claims that Jesus rose from the dead. I'll read one other quote that did make the slideshow from William Ramsey. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, but this author should be placed along with the very greatest historians. Here's a non-Christian archaeologist talking about the accuracy of uh, one of the Gospel accounts. Here's what I think the only conclusion you can draw is. The documents were the product of faithfully recorded eyewitness testimony um, by people who had no motive to lie, much to suffer for their claim, but they really did believe that what they were writing was the truth. And so here's what we've seen. um, And I'm going to just kind of, there's the first three that we've seen. I'm just going to run through the last four pieces of evidence. Piece of evidence number one, Jesus really did live and die. Number two, his tomb was empty and no one's been able to produce a body. Number three, multiple people saw him raised to life. I don't know how you explain that, but uh, if we had more time, here's what we go into. Um, Number four, the explosion of an entirely different worldview Christianity. Within weeks, there were 10,000 Christians in Jerusalem alone. This is the same place he was publicly crucified where his body would have been buried. And I've got to ask you, why did it explode so quickly? Was it really, really clever preaching by fishermen? Or could it have been that maybe 500 people saw a man come alive again and just started to tell everyone about it? Number five up there, Jewish Christians move the day of worship to a Sunday. Have you ever known religious people to like change? There's no way that... Um, religious people hate change. You, you, know, And here's what's happened for... for the past 1,400 years, Jews honored Sunday as the holy day. 1,400 years. In fact, for the past 2,000 years, Jews continue to do that. But within weeks of Jesus' crucifixion, something happened so that Jesus' followers, who were Jews, moved the day of worship from a, Sunday to a, uh, from a Saturday to a Sunday. Yeah, thank you. How do you explain that? A 1,400-year-old tradition scrapped and replaced with a new day. Did something happen one Sunday morning to make that day more special? Piece of evidence number six, the crazy change in the lives of early Christians. Here's what happened. Disciples, I don't know if if you know the story, but they're cowards um, in an upper room huddled together. I don't know if you have a story about this, but Peter, a, a servant girl, says to Peter, hey, I saw you with Jesus. Peter says, not me, (laughs) not me. He denies it to even a servant girl. And then overnight, what happens? They change into fearless men who stand up in front of um, the the biggest authorities of the day, like like standing in front of the Pope and saying, no, I saw this, and boldly maintaining that claim to their death. Paul, you know the story of Paul? He went around um, um, ordering the execution of Christians, and he went from that preaching, Jesus is alive, he's my Lord. What happened to change those people? Something had to have happened. And number seven, monotheistic Jews began to worship Jesus as God. Monotheistic, meaning they had only one God, he's in heaven. I kind of talked about this. And they were brought up believing it's blasphemy, it's the worst possible sin to claim any but the, the God in heaven is God. What happened? Imagine you grew up around a guy called Jesus. What would it take to convince you that he was God? Because something happened to convince these guys to worship Jesus as God. Now, there's more than this, but we just don't have time to go into it. Um, these are all real pieces of evidence. You need to have an explanation for them. Now, if we have more time, I'd like to hear you guys try and have theories about what you think happened. Um, I reckon I've heard just about every possible one, um, but willing to be proven wrong on that. But I reckon I could show you why that doesn't provide a satisfactory account of the evidence. But here's what I reckon you need to do from here. You need to let this hit you and you need to focus your, if you're not sure whether there's a God or whatever, you need to focus right in on this. Deal with these things. Let that hit you. Let that, that Jesus really did live, he really did die He was buried but his tomb was empty and hundreds of people saw him alive supported by numerous um, other things. I'll tell you what I think is the only reasonable explanation that you'd have to be unreasonable to doubt. The impossible happened. Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. Which would mean that God is real, that death isn't the end, that in the end the things that Jesus taught are true including the things that he taught about himself, that he's the king of all people, that he's the savior of all people, and that he is uh, the person that you need to put your trust in if you want to be right with God. That's what I had to say. I think I run a little bit over. That's okay. What I'm going to do now is just say, um, if you want to stick around and chat with me, I'll do that for a little bit, but if you want to go get dinner, you can. I'll say, I'm jolly well convinced that this is true, and I hope you are, but if, you want, if you're not convinced, that's okay. Talk to your leader. Talk to people around you about it. But if this is true, remember that quote we saw at the start? If, the things of, if Christianity is not true, it's of no importance. If it is true, it's infinitely important. Tonight when you hear a talk, listen to it. To next week, Coastal Revolution, if this is true, you need to make sure that you are right with this Jesus. Thanks for listening to me. Um, Yeah, I hope it's been helpful, but yeah, feel free to stick around and chat for about 10 minutes, but the rest of you guys can go, I don't mind. Thank you. You don't have to clap. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is.
1: Here's a quick little question that you can ask to test your heart on this one. You ready? If God, in his infinite wisdom, decided that he was no longer going to save you, you you decide, no, 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 actually, sorry, you can't come to heaven anymore. I'm actually going to judge you for your sin. What would your response be? Oh, God, look, look how how good I've been since you saved me. Oh, look how I've lived. Oh, I've sacrificed so much for you. Look at what I've done. Do you know how much I've been to youth? been to g teams. I've been telling my mates about Jesus. Come on, really? Look, come on, you've saved me. It's, oh, look what you've done to me. Like, you know what that is? God, I deserve to be saved. That was me. I thought I deserved to be saved. But no, you don't. You don't deserve anything. Well, actually, you do deserve something. You deserve to be thrown in hell forever for your rejection of God. But he has no obligation to save you whatsoever. It's a gift. And so you would have no right to complain if he was to choose to take it away. And there's nothing that you could do about it. Now, does that freak you out? Because that freaks me out, that kind of thought. The good thing is God promises that he won't do that. But, but I'm powerless. And so I need help. And that's all I can hope for. Um, But that's where this news is so good because I do have help. God has acted to save and it's in him that I have faith and faith alone. So test your heart on that one. Are you really trusting in him? Now I've been talking about faith, right? Um, But often Christians get this wrong. Lots of people get lots of stuff wrong. I've been saying that a lot tonight. But... Christians get it wrong, what faith is. You see, faith isn't this random concept out there uh, that that sounds nice. It's got to have faith, man, totally. Like, it sounds kind of hippie. But um, everyone has faith, right? It's just just in different stuff. I want you to imagine this, ready? Boom. This is a thing called free soloing, all right? It's rock climbing without any harness, any rope, all right? See the dude up top left? Chillin' out on the rocks. Whoa, he falls, he's in the water, whatever. All right, he'll be all right. Hit the next one. Dude, but we can't really see how high that one is, so let's go to the next one. <laughs> Man, he slips, he, he's dead right now, all right. Um, he doesn't have a harness, nothing is saving him. Let's go to this next one. This is dude, look how much gear he has there. This dude isn't free soloing. This guy's just normal rock climbing. He's got the most amount of safety gear you've ever seen, huge rope, all that kind of thing. Which person here has the most amount of faith? See, I'm tempted to go, the guy with all the gear. Look how much trust he's putting in the ropes, in all his gear. He's got heaps of faith. But go back one slide. Look how much faith this dude has in himself. He's going, I'm not going to slip. I'm that good. Check out how good I am. I'm totally safe. He has heaps of faith, it's just not in a rope. It's in Himself. And so we all have this different kind of faith. It's just in different things. And that's the point that God makes here, right? It's the next point that He makes. It's by faith in God and in His promise. Do you remember old man Abe? Um, it's what Sam read for us before in, uh, in Genesis. We went to Genesis before. It was exciting. Um, old man Abe, he really was old man Abe. Like... He was like 100 years old. Like he was, he was pretty old. And his wife was barren, which means she couldn't have kids. Now, I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but when you start getting really old, you, you can't have kids. You don't have kids anymore. That's just the way it works. We can talk mechanics later if you want. Um, but people who can't have kids, they don't have kids either. All right? That's kind of obvious. Abe, he had the combo. He was old and his wife couldn't have kids. He's got pretty small chance he, he can't have kids. All right? And yet, God promises him to have, he'll have kids. And that is what Abe trusts in. He trusts in God's promise. You will have kids. Have a look there at verse 18. I'll read a couple of verses there. Verse 18. Against all hope, pretty unlikely, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as has been said to him So shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He was old, since he was about 100 years old. There you go. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Now listen to what he does. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he'd promised. Did you hear that description of faith there? He didn't have unbelief uh, at God's promise. Uh, that is, he trusted in God's promise because, verse 21, check this out, I love this verse. He was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. See, faith is trusting that God can and will keep his promise. A believed that God would keep his promise regarding kids, and that was credited to him as righteousness. He had faith in God and in his promise. See, it's not faith in God outside the promise. It doesn't quite work like that. We can't trust God. uh, We we can't trust that God will give us a jag to to cruise home in tonight. We can't trust that. Uh, I mean, he might. um, But we can't trust that he will. Because he doesn't promise that he will. Um, This is where a number of Christians go wrong. Because they totally trust in things that God doesn't promise to them. He doesn't promise that we'll be free from sickness, that we'll be rich, that we'll get a sweet girlfriend tomorrow. He doesn't promise these things, so we can't speak with confidence about them. If we don't get them, it's not like a lack of faith, it's just God's decided not to give it to us. He never promises to. Um, so be careful of trusting God to do things that he doesn't promise to do? He probably won't. Well, he might, but he probably won't. We can ask for them, and it's it's right to do that, but we can't presume that we'll get them. Because soon we'll start trusting in our praying. You've got to get the right prayer. You've got to kind of have the right kind of amount of faith. And we stop trusting in God and his promise. Um, But faith, God makes a point here, is in God and in his promise. So, it raises the question for me. I don't know if it raises for you. What does he promise us? I don't know if that raises the question for you, but he promises us a number of different things. Um, but there's one thing in particular that he promises when it comes to being saved. Have a look at verse 23. We're on the final stretch, guys. Have a look at verse 23. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. See, he promises that we can be justified. We can be not guilty before him. We can be forgiven because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. God promises that if we trust in Jesus to take our sins, he will. We can be right with him. And it's a promise we can be sure of because God always keeps his promises. We see him keep his promise to Abe. And he'll keep it to us. You want to be free from sin? You want to have eternal life? Well, have faith in God and his promise and have faith alone. And do you know what? If you are justified, if you are saved from your sin, that's better than all those other things put together. Who really cares if you don't have a girlfriend? if you're headed to forever with God. So what if you don't have heaps of money now if you have eternal joy waiting for you? And that's actually where where chapter 5 goes. Uh, We'll get to that probably next week. That we can be totally content with the promise that God gives us. We don't need anything else. See, it comes through faith alone in God and in His promise. The Catholics, they get it wrong. The Muslims, they get it wrong. The Jews get it wrong. Lots of Christians get it wrong. Most of the people who have ever lived get it wrong. And they're all going to hell. Make sure you don't get it wrong. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, uh, you are a good God. You sent your son down to die for us. for us sinful people, so that we can be right with you again. But Lord, thank you for showing us tonight that it doesn't happen automatically for us. Thank you for showing us that we need to have faith in Christ. Thank you for showing us that uh, it's by faith alone and that it's faith in you and in your promise. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to trust in you and in that promise. I pray that we would have faith. I pray that uh, everyone here uh, would um, be able to trust in you for the rest of our lives, and never forget, and never let go of the truth uh, in that. And I pray that we would all get to uh, get to be in heaven forever uh, because of what you have done. Amen. Whew. I would love to say yes but I'm not gonna make it home I don't think. Okay, like, I'm gonna break down that. Yeah, heck you like, game. why are you filming this?